Welcome to Conversations with Leaders, Ask the AWS Strategists. I'm Jake Burns, and I'm joined again by my colleagues, Brian Landerman and Ishit Bashrajani. Today, we realize we have some differing opinions on modernization, which is common when working with customers. Listen in as we discuss and hopefully give you some ideas for your modernization approach. So when it comes to architecting for modernizing your environment, where do you begin in setting a strategy for making decisions? It's interesting the way you phrase that because I was immediately thinking the architecture of your your components and and your your technology or your your people because um, that's a big part of it too, right? Um, yeah, you know, look, there's there's a bunch of patterns that have been around for a while um, that I see enterprises using over and over again and and largely together. Um, event decoupling is a big one. And, um, you know, the other is, is the strangler pattern and you can go look, Martin Fowler wrote about them many years ago, but kind of put together, they provide a very logical way of looking at your, your technology estate and breaking it down. So the strangler pattern is basically rather than some big rewrite and, and tackling it all and taking on all the risks that comes with it. Instead, um, prioritize pieces and rewrite pieces. And by doing so over and over again, you slowly kind of whittle away what's what's sitting at the center, which is your legacy monolith. And event decoupling is a good way to find where the breaking points are because you can look at the natural events within your system where today you might be processing it side by side with other um, activities, you can say, well, you know, hey, if I if I broke it out right here, and instead of processing it right now, I just announced that this thing occurred, and then let a, a lot of things flow off of that. Um, that becomes natural breaking points for your, for your system and, and natural places to rewrite. I use a, an example of, you know, like if you went to a, a fast food restaurant and and you ha- you you were ordering at the counter, and the person that took your order then had to go back to the grill and cook cook the burger and drop the fries in and fill your drink and then go flip the burger and put the cheese on and get the fries and, and, and package your order versus, you know, what we're used to where the order gets placed and the grill station gets notified that, that they need to cook a burger and the fry station gets notified. And so that's much more of an event driven approach to accomplishing the same thing where my order at the end of the day arrives back at the counter and I, and I walk away with it, but it's, it's broadcasting out that event for, for those things to get kind of be handled as black boxes and processed um, individually. So would you say that you would approach this problem by taking a look at the functionality and the business problem and trying to modernize the solution to that rather than like look at the technology and say, how can we modernize this technology? Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's, it's, that's exactly right. And, and uh, to your questioning, um, the business requirements, right? Cause I, I think a lot of, a lot of our systems, um, get more and more complex over time as a result of changes, right? We make changes. And so what we end up with may not necessarily have been the intended state. And so I think, especially if you're, you know, you're refactoring or you're looking at different ways to solve a problem, you have to go back and say, just because it exists, doesn't mean it has to be you know? Um, so I think that's an important piece of it. I think one, uh, 
Um, and I'm not sure this is not an architectural pattern, but this is a pattern that uh, I've used sometimes dealing with these large applications is uh, uh, kill and then wait for the screen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a good pattern. Right, because what happens is when these monoliths are built over a period of time, 5, 10, 15 years, uh, when you look at modules, functionality, services, features, there are just hundreds of different things that this big thing does. And oftentimes, um, business processes have changed. People who wanted that in the first place have left. Uh, and we still maintain that code. We still maintain that functionality. And traditionally, when IT has looked at modernization, we consider all of that as part of this effort, right? So I think um, figuring out what's what's truly dead code and and features and functionality that is completely outdated um, uh, is is such a critical part of it, right? Just shut it down. That's the one critical part of uh, modernization that I've seen. You know, there are tools that can tell you what's being used, but sometimes that um, is not the whole story. You know, sometimes the system's being used, but there's no business value being derived from it, right? And so just because there's utilization doesn't mean there's value. What's your capacity to value ratio versus your capacity to utilization ratio? I think, I think that's a much more mature metric to have. Of course, it's much more difficult to, to calculate that. But once you have that, um, the whole concept of business value kind of solves itself because now what you're doing, everything you're doing is increasing that, that value ratio. Um, and so I think a big part of it from an architectural standpoint is, you know, Definitely look at utilization as a first pass and definitely use these tools as a first pass. But then you have to look at, um, you know, what the, what as a second pass and a further iterations, what's that value? I really like that capacity, capacity to value. I really like that. And I think, uh, your, your point there is, is a good one, Jake, about diving deep and, and kind of tracing it and understanding the data, mm-hmm. um, and and not not that that isn't difficult, um, it, it it is. It's an, it's potentially right. a new muscle. Um, what I've found to be challenging, I'd love your take um, on this, guys. Is it becomes difficult the the value conversation to create a, a level playing field. I remember we were trying to retire some reporting, and and because we we had outdated tech that was end of life and you know we had like three paths forward some new new legacy option you know that was like it was already legacy and we were going to move to that some you know big contract to to get it to a, a state so it's at least supported or go to aws and we were trying to decrease the scope of it by saying hey what do we actually need and went went to business stakeholders and, and said do you use this can we shut this off and it almost came back 100%, yet we need it all. And you're like, how is that possible? What's your experience level setting value and versus effort? Yeah, I think uh, one way, um, it, it kind of plays into what Jake said, right? When you ask, is are you using this? The answer is 99% of the time, yes. Uh, but then you say, what are you using it for? Well, I get it weekly. Okay, what do you do with it? <laughs> um, and and I think that's where uh, the conversation a lot of times shifts, right? Because 
the the use means it gets created. I have access to it. I look at it versus how and what for. Um, uh, when uh, one of the one of the major projects that uh, that I worked on at uh, at A and E was to uh, replace our global financial system, and when we started, uh, we had around seven hundred reports in scope. Uh, and and that just didn't find the smell test, right? Uh, I I don't need to know anything about the business, the complexity of financial system to know that realistically no one is using seven hundred different reports. Um, and so that's the conversation that that I had with with our controller and say this just cannot be real, right? That seven hundred reports are cannot be really in use. They may be created, generated, somebody might be getting them in their email or going to a portal, but what are they doing with it? And then and then we actually took the approach of shutting a lot of it down first and then waiting what happens. Um, eventually, when we moved to the new, uh, new platform, we, I think, came down to like something like 55 out of seven, 700. Uh, uh, so it was it was not even close. It was less than ten percent. There's 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 a lot here. The, uh, this is a classic IT problem, right? Everyone tells you when they want something. No one ever tells you when they're done with it. True. <laughs> you know? And in a fixed cost model, you know, there's not much incentive to go seek and destroy those uh, those unused resources because you already paid for them, right? Once you move to cloud, and you want to drive those those operating costs down as much as possible. Um, and you want to get significant cost savings, um, that's where you need to, where you need to look, you need to look at things that are not really being used anymore. And you got to keep doing that over and over again. And that's how you keep your costs low. I think the, with cloud, you have such a greater opportunity to redirect your investment, to continually redirect to what is most valuable. And so recouping those costs, sure, could go to cost savings, but you could also just say, well, by not spending my money there on something that wasn't valuable, I can spend it on something that is. And I think you know you, the business agility you get out of that, um, being able to to kind of move your your money around based on the value you need today, is significant. And also, you you have visibility into what you have for the first time ever. Also, that's what I was going to say, Jake. I think the the the, the visibility into uh, the the spaghetti or the mess, right? And that kind of bubbles up the villains uh, because now you know. Uh, Things that sort of your shared on-premises infrastructure uh, hides, they they actually show up, right? So you now know how to prioritize your modernization effort much better. I think we just found the yeah. the new title for your next blog Agreed. post. Agreed. Bubble up the, the villains. cloud bubbles up the villains. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, you know. You were talking about earlier about how 99% of the time uh, your, your stakeholders will come back and say, we're using it. And it's, I think there's another thing at work here. It's, uh, it's, it's a moral hazard of sorts, you know, where they have no incentive to say no, right? Because typically they're not really paying for it. You know, maybe there's some rough allocations that go on, but in general, IT is going to be eating majority of those costs, especially the kind of hidden costs when you're on-prem. So... Uh, so why would they say I don't need it anymore? It's only it's only risk for them because even if in their mind they, there's only a one percent chance that they might need it, well someone else is paying for it, so keep it right. So I think that's part of the problem, 
And I think it's, it's also why that problem largely goes away once you transition to cloud, because again, you have the cost transparency and, uh, you know, you, everybody knows what's, you know, what's being spent and who's spending it. If you're, if you're doing a good job of, uh, you know, reporting on that and, you know, AWS makes that easy, of course. Right. So, so that was my own personal experience, right? It was, there was always, you know, it was like, not, it was probably a hundred percent of the time people would come back and say, yes, I'm using it. It was almost like an auto reply, you know, on their email. <laughs> it was an auto response of sorts. Right. But post cloud that, that changed. And, and I think the, the, the big reason was because we had that cost transparency and, you know, it was hard to say, I need that when you can attach a dollar figure to it. And, you know, everyone in the organization saw that. Yeah. I think I'm, I'm seeing, you know, talking to, to customers and, and found in my own experience that the cloud makes it very easy to map costs and, and associate them to specific, um, things moving to products and you know so the the architecture side of on for people is um i think important too because you know one of the things that we did from a cost perspective was have um you know small teams that that owned things that rolled up into product lines that rolled up into our pnls that you know now we had people explicitly allocated to a product. And so it wasn't, you know, how much is that project costing me start and budget? We hit budget. We didn't, we move on. It's like, nope, this scrum team is an ongoing cost of this product line. And, you know, so you have the people associated and, and really moving to a product P and L, which we didn't have, we were very much organized around, um, our business unit P and Ls, which were largely acquired businesses. And so as we start shrinking that, and then we take the, the cloud costs and we say, okay, well, here's your scrum team costs, you know, to, to, to build and maintain these products. And we can tell you what they're working on maintenance versus architecture versus new feature. And, you know, here's what it costs to, to operate that product um, from an infrastructure perspective. I think marrying that set together opened a lot of people's eyes as to how much, how much things cost and you, you start kind of changing the perspective on what on value yeah i i i think one one other uh resistance to let go of what is already in in use right quote unquote use um beyond cost is also until you move that change to uh what you described uh from an organization standpoint brian um there is also a fear that if i let go of something and then if i need it, uh, and I go back to IT and ask for it, I'll be back in the line. It'll take six months, three months, right? So there's also a fear from the customers because of the traditional sort of lack of agility. Uh, and and now when you show that, well, you know what? If, if we need to create something or if we need to change something, we're talking days or weeks rather than months and years. Uh, then I think that mindset starts to shift a little bit. Yeah, having that agility, having that ability to do things quickly, um, it it gives you um, that that push you need to do what you know already needs to be done, right? Whether it is getting rid of things, or the example I use um, more often than that even um, is uh, is when you want to try new things. Let's just say you fail ninety nine percent of the time. 
that can end up being a good thing. You know, if you, if you, if you learn early enough in the experiment that it's a failure, that means you're going to try that many more things and you're going to find, um, as a result, you're going to find that many great answers, um, from that, those, those iterations. So having a high failure rate isn't necessarily a bad thing. It all depends on like how agile you are, how your ability to change course, um, kind of nuke those projects when they stop working, uh, early on. And, um, and your ability to see that, you know, as early in the process as possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I love, I love where you went with that. I was thinking the same thing, um, after, you know, Isha talked about waiting in line and in the long cycles, um, it does, it's a good reminder though, that you need to tackle this from many angles. You can't just change your mindset to say, well, we're going to experiment more and, and we're going to be open, open to failure. Like you have to have that agility, right? So that you can do it quickly, so that you can learn quickly, so that the investment you're making in that experiment and therefore that failure is much smaller. And it's, um, I think too many, too many folks are tackling pieces and not seeing the benefit. I think um, this might be a, a touchy subject, but I'm going <laughs> to say it anyway. Uh, you know, I look at like innovation labs, which I think in some businesses make a lot of sense, right? Um, you know, m- maybe hardware heavy businesses, innovation labs are necessary because there's, you know, real fabrication and things necessary. But in a software space, using an innovation lab to create innovation for the business is in my in my mind is tackling a small part of the broader problem and and you're unlikely to get the broad benefits you expect by by doing it that way what do you guys think um i i had one so <laughs> i'm going to defend <laughs> oh, no. it a little i'm glad bit. i let you go first <laughs> oh i didn't um, know that no, i wasn't but, making fun of you no that's okay brian <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, I I think you're right, though. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, But it's about um, when you say innovation or when you say lab, right, what does it mean? Uh, And how you actually run it. If it is truly this this sort of siloed group that uh, only works on the next sort of shiniest object and doesn't take anything to the finish line, right, Uh, then then that becomes sort of more of a... uh, symbolic lab versus um, if you're focused on stuff that um, where a group of people or a team uh, is not burdened with anything uh, operational, um, but they are still very well connected with the rest of the business. Um, and they are taking swings on things that nobody is asking about, nobody is talking about. But the goal for them is to incubate and engage and inspire everybody. It is not just to say, this is the secret uh, skunk work that no one knows and next greatest thing is going to come from that, right? It is truly to say, here is here is uh, a lab where you can bring your idea and we will help you experiment very quickly. So it's not that we generate all the ideas, we build everything, and then we're going to find next billion dollar revenue product from this lab. But here is a lab where if you have an idea, come bring it. We have the tools, the methodology, and time to actually experiment with you. Yeah. 
good good clarification yeah that, yeah. that makes a lot of sense uh, i i i do have comments jake <laughs> yeah. go ahead wait wait i'm in glad English. you approve brian now <laughs> I was just going to say, I don't know if I should say it now, but I was going to say, like, does having an innovation lab send the message to everyone else that this is the only place where we innovate? Right. You know, are we are we basically saying all the rest of you are not supposed to innovate? Yeah. So I, I want to. No, I, I so I want to clarify too. So uh, we didn't call it innovation lab. We oh. actually called it tech lab. Um, that's you know, so that's uh, and the concept was that that is where if there was, let's say, we wanted to experiment with haptic or VR, uh, that was a place where we would first bring a tech and say, you know what, we're going to train few people. They're going to build something, and then they're going to showcase, and then people can go in there and say hey, I want to try this, I want to try that, I have an idea, and I want to solve a problem. Um, but I just need, like, two engineers to work with me for next two weeks to come up with a prototype. The biggest thing was also uh, is to go around sort of this having to define and fund everything, right? Because right. that's the other piece. Because some of these ideas, in fact, most of these ideas get killed uh, or or you learn something out of it, but they don't go anywhere. And and so in a traditional uh, sort of cycle of budgeting and allocating funds by projects and products and things, you you, you kind of almost get the get a flexibility of running a group that you can experiment very quickly with. So th- let me just challenge a little bit because I like the idea, but um, why not? have your entire organization operate that way easier said than done right uh you easy and and i'm not saying they shouldn't um but you do have operational responsibilities you do have folks who have to keep things running and make sure oil changes are done on time and uh there's uh there's a gas filled in the car right so you you do have to make sure (laughs) that those things happen as well um, I also think that uh, it's it's sort of a catalyst, right? It, it's how you use it. If you create, like I said, if you create an isolate in 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 isolation, a group that is working on secretive stuff, and they are the only ones working on cool stuff, and nobody else, that's challenging. Uh, but if you put them in middle of everyone else and say. Here is, here is a lab, which is a resource to everyone. So you want to go in and say, I have an idea. Will you work with me for next four weeks without having to go through any bureaucracy, approval, nothing? Yeah, I think um, kind of where I started was was kind of what, what Jake is pushing on, which is I oriented more towards we need to make this a muscle of the organization um, we need to create space. So even just from a prioritization perspective, like we weren't committed to anything beyond a quarter, right? I mean, every, every quarter we had, we had IP planning and we could completely shift what we were working on. So there wasn't this idea of, well, my whole IT, you know, organization is committed through the next year. So if, if there were ideas we wanted to pursue, we were free to do that in the natural space of getting work done. I agree with you. The operational challenges, you know, can, can make it tough. And I love the idea of enabling, like creating space and enabling innovation, very different than charging 
a, like an innovation lab with innovation. That's very different. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't agree with that, um, uh, with charging them with innovation, but, you know, I think the other place that it gets challenging is a lot of our scrum teams are built on the problems we're faced with. Um, or at least, at least for, for me, it was, it was like, well, what are you, what are you building? What are you supporting? And, um, you know, do you need UI engineers? Are you operationally heavy? And so the balance of the team was based on the problems they were trying to solve. Well, if all of a sudden you introduce a problem that they're not equipped to solve, that's where it gets challenging. And, and a lot of the innovation or forward looking or kind of disruptive ideas that you want to pursue can tend to be outside that skill set. On the one, one side, it's like fantastic to get them to learn and to play with that new technology, but how much time and energy are you spending learning versus actually testing the idea? You know, and so that becomes challenging. So we kind of use hackathons as a way to let them learn and play and and um, test their ideas um, without like a bigger commitment to, I have this this real thing that might be great for the business that we really want to experiment with and 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 need to prove quickly and as as cheaply as possible. Let's run at that. So I, I I'm I'm on the fence. I agree with both of you guys on. Um, I don't think there's an answer. I think it has to be a mixture, but I, I love the idea of making the organization broadly innovative um, first. Yeah. And, and I'm not necessarily, I'm not taking an opposing stance here, just to be clear. I'm not, I'm not disagreeing. I'm just, I'm just trying to say where challenging it. Yeah. Yeah. Where's the line, right? Cause it sounds That's like right. what you're saying is that, you know, you're, you're, you're almost by, by making it a uh, not everywhere, you're kind of a, you're, you're kind of allowing that, innovation team, uh, room to breathe by having others who are taking care of that day to day. And there has to be this balance between the chaos and the order. If you go, you know, most organizations are too much order and they're not innovating. Right. But you can also have too much chaos and you're not keeping the lights running. The thing is, it's not, uh, uh, or it is an and, right? So it is not that, oh, because I have this function, that means the rest of the organized organization should not or cannot, right? It is really about using the function as an enabler, almost a, you know, you, you sometimes provoke an observe, right? Uh, you, 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 to, to, to drive the change, you need to provoke. Uh, and, and that becomes a provocation sometimes to, uh, to really for other teams to also start to come up with ideas and experiment, right? So, um, it shouldn't be restrictive. And to Brian's point, it's not something, a group that is charged with innovation, right? It is, uh, it's like, oh, you innovate, everybody else runs the shop, right? Uh, that that definitely does not work. Um, but I think that's a, that's where I look at it as a lab concept, as, as an experimentation concept. The thing that comes to mind um, for me lately, because we've been doing a lot of, of from home content creation, and it it gets really challenging when your your workspace is constantly shifting, right? Versus what I'm picturing, walking into a studio, everything's set up, ready to go, dialed in, you know, the the level of consistency, how quickly you can get moving, very different. And so, you know, as you're talking, I'm kind of picturing that lab of, hey, there's all these, you know, toys set up and, and you know, stations kind of ready to go and build. Um, and that would be, I think that would be amazing to kind of, um, make it really easy to get started. 
In in fact, we had a room. I want so, one. I want one of those. Yes, uh, we we had a room which was which <laughs> was in fact the corner office which contained this lab versus like my love office it. was love on the main street. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of sort of modernization, another topic, uh, and this could be now that we're talking about uh, topics that uh, that are that are that have uh, differing point of views. I think one thing that often comes up is microservices versus monolith. And so customers often ask uh, this, um, it, will you guys consider monolith for anything today? And when I say monolith, um, I don't, of course, mean building an application for a 10-year lifespan, right? I, I'm, I'm talking about what would architecturally be considered a monolith today. I, so... I. I say no, but the definition I think is what we need to get crisp on. So when I when I say no, the monolith that I'm picturing is, you know, this tightly coupled, coupled like three tier architecture. Um, nothing about it is modular, right? To for most for the most part. Um, so I'd say no to that, but. To the idea of, and I and I wrote a blog post on this recently about size and scope of services. Microservices implies that it's really small, and so I don't think that starting really small is is appropriate always, especially when you're learning. But you can still use kind of these broad patterns of you know database as a service. Um, consistent look and feel, even though you have different um, different a- applications, right? So you can have multiple JavaScript libraries serving different single page apps, as an example, unified by a common look and feel and single sign on. And so that's that's a broad departure from the monolith, but it doesn't force you know there, nothing about that says that you have to prematurely optimize the the size and scope of your service. So I I think. I think, and and what I kind of tend to look to is that twelve-factor app, which, again, like the configuration, the deployability um, of your application, that's all really important. S- microservices is not always the right starting point, and and you might you might cause more more pain and and um, and slow yourself down by starting there versus um, committing to refactoring over time. And continually improving and, and intentionally simplifying. Yeah, and I, I think that's what I was I was getting at, Brian. Because sometimes uh, what happens with these things is uh, you get into almost a religious debate or definition debate, right? Uh, about what a microservices is, and my microservices may look like monolith to you because uh, it's still, to your point, a it's it's bigger in in size and scope. Uh, but the way the mental model I have applied is is what we often uh, talk about in uh, our uh, high frequency enterprise talk, which is really breaking up the work and the application into smaller chunk. And you're not going to go from inheriting a 10, 15 year old legacy application, which was built in a three tier architecture, runs 80% of your business to a completely, uh, what will be again, Past the microservices test uh, 
architecture overnight. Um, and so how do you go from that to smaller chunks to smaller chunks and continue to sort of iterate further? So I think um, it makes me think of, you know, at Amazon, we say two is two is greater than zero. Um, and I've, you know, I'm, I'm a very logical thinker and, and would naturally orient myself towards, okay, well, let's figure this out and let's, you know, make all the pieces work together and not a duplication. But, you know, I think the reality is that we underestimate the amount of time and energy that goes into that upfront rationalization and, and determination of, of what it should be without fully understanding the problem or even knowing if we need to. And so again, like two is greater than zero. Okay. So if there's a little overlap, that's fine. We'll deal with the overlap if, and when it's a problem. Right now, it's better to get going and start learning and make progress and, and deliver value than, yeah. than not. Yeah. And like everything, there are exceptions. Two is not always greater than zero, right? I think True. to your point. Um, Two is always greater than zero. <laughs> Microservices are always better than monoliths. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think it, it's useful to kind of look at, take extreme examples when you're, when you're um, talking about these kind of things, right? To, to kind of clarify your thinking. Could there be such a thing as an enterprise that's too high frequency? And what would that look like? The way I think about it is, is frequency activity or outcome, right? Because you can be high frequency uh, by doing a lot of things. And that's, the, that's some of the, sometimes, you know, I know we use things like deployment frequency and, and release frequency to measure the agility and value we are adding. But uh, those are those are in some ways proxy ma matrix, right? Because I, I'm deploying 20 times a day. Does that really mean I'm actually creating value in all those 20 deployments that I did uh, today, right? Uh, it's definitely much better than uh, accumulating value over three months and deploying it once and then rolling back that deployment on a Friday night. Um, but um, I think that's... so. A, a high frequency of value and achievement uh, is definitely always better. And I don't think you can ever have uh, something that is too high frequency. I agree with you. The, the other side is if high frequency is, is defined by change is constant. And so higher and higher frequency means more and more change at a, at a increasingly more rapid pace than uh, maybe not, right? That you you may be moving towards chaos at that point. Um, but yeah. I think that's kind of what I was thinking. What, what it is is talking about, I think, is a different dimension, right? Which it, you're clearly right that you should be measuring outcomes rather than activity. Um, but I think the frequency, I think that's separate from your frequency to an to an extent. It's definitely true that outcomes base is better than activity base. But all else being equal in that regard. Um, is a higher frequency always better? In other words, a higher iteration of, of, of choices, um, the, the frequency that you make choices, that you make decisions. So clearly a low frequency is outdated, an outdated model that doesn't work. You're not going to compete with an organization that's uh, high frequency if you're low frequency, like you're making decisions once a year. But I guess kind of to what you're saying, Brian, is there a point where you're making decisions so and changing direction and course correcting so often that you're just going around in a circle. Well, I mean, even just from a, I also think from a customer perspective, if you look at, if you're constantly introducing change into their environment from, from what you're releasing, you know, at what point does that become overwhelming and hard to keep up with? For me, I think that's a, a 
you know, one of the reasons for that is because too much change all at once, it, 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 it's tough to keep up with. I think it is. I, I, I think that it's about, um, are you changing? Are you defining change as change or are you really looking at change as I'll go back to the thing that customer truly cares for? And if it is, then I don't think too much is there is, there's nothing like too much, right? Uh, I do think though that that kind of environment may not be for everyone though, right? It, it is not, you, you never have a lull, right? You never in a period where you say, I'm just going to like coast for next month, you know, or a few weeks and write it out, right? A little bit. So I think that is a, a high frequency environment is also a high performance, uh, high performing environment. And, and it is high expectation environment. Um, but I think what is important is what are you defining that frequency as, right? That is the, 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 how frequently are you delivering value to your customer? Not how frequently you're delivering changes, not how frequently you're deploying, but how frequently are you delivering value to your customer? And then the second piece is, um, is change, right? It's a, it's that you are comfortable with the change. Doesn't mean that you are changing all the time. It is just that you are, you're building the mental models, the muscles, the system, the culture that that is comfortable with the constant change, right? Doesn't mean you have to change direction every day, but that just means that if something were to happen, you're much more nimble and adaptable and mentally prepared to deal with a change. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, so there's 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 an ideal state would be no delay between a customer's emerging need yeah. and your reaction to it. Yeah, both right. unstated and stated. I, I think the, the good news is, is that's really far away for a lot of us. We've, we've awesome. got a long ways to go to get there. I think this was probably my favorite episode so far with uh, Brian and Ashit. Um, I really enjoyed the debate and the fact that we didn't completely agree on everything. Although by the end, I think uh, we were a little closer than where we started. Hopefully we can continue these conversations in future episodes. And uh, please submit your questions directly to us on the Enterprise Strategy Blog or reach out to us on LinkedIn, and we'll do our best to answer those in future episodes. See you next time.